Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. It's a Tory party conference unlike any other. It has very quickly become an epic political catastrophe for her. For Liz Truss, her honeymoon as leader soured 11 days ago when the new Chancellor, Kwasi Kwarteng, delivered what he called a fiscal event. Mr Speaker, we're at the beginning of a new era. And what an era it's been as the Chancellor announced record government borrowing, coupled with huge unfunded tax cuts that would particularly benefit the rich. The markets went into meltdown. The British pound touches a record low against the dollar. £500 billion has been knocked off the value of UK stocks and bonds since Liz Truss became Prime Minister. The pound plummeted, inflation surged, and in an unprecedented move, the Bank of England intervened with an emergency £65 billion bond-buying programme. But while even the IMF criticised the government's plans, the Prime Minister doubled down. So you won't change your mind on the 45p rate? No. But within 24 hours, that changed. The government is about to announce one of these. Yep. U-turn, a handbrake turn is on its way. Good morning. Liz Truss and Kwasi Kwarteng have abandoned a plan to abolish the 45p rate of income tax for top earners. Charles, you'll have to forgive me just being slightly impatient with you. I have in front of me the trail of your speech, which journalists were sent yesterday. We will stay the course, it says. I will. The Prime Minister said... Yes, we will stick with this tax cut. And now you're presenting this as if, well, of course, we just had a chat and we changed our mind. The government was forced into a humiliating U-turn when it became clear that even Tory MPs had lost confidence. The sheer risk of uh, using borrowed money to fund tax cuts, that is not conservative. Cutting tax for the wealthiest... That is a display of the wrong values. And who was to blame for the policy? Did you discuss scrapping the top rate with your whole cabinet? No. No, we didn't. It was a decision that um, the Chancellor made. 
So how much do we know about the man who caused a financial storm and within a fortnight of taking office became the most radical and controversial Chancellor Britain has ever seen? You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Manveen Rana. Today, the Chancellor, the U-turn and a political meltdown. Speaking to us from the hall in Birmingham at the Tory party conference is Henry Zeffman. Hi, I'm just trying to take you off speaker, but I can't work out how to. Hang on. Associate political editor at The Times. Henry, we're, we're talking to you on Monday morning. You were in the middle of Tory party conference and it sounds like it's in disarray. I mean, this should have been the big honeymoon. This was the big party conference with a new leader where everyone rallies around and and shows their support. It doesn't sound like it's going to plan. Just describe the scene around you. How different is this from a normal party conference? Well, I was reflecting when I was on my way here how extraordinary it is that at this event last year, Boris Johnson, remember him, seemed utterly imperious, both over the Conservative Party, but over also the British political terrain. And now here we are, Liz Truss's first party conference as Conservative Party leader a year on. And the question in the bars and restaurants and quiet corners of this conference centre on some was not whether Liz Truss would have to abandon the 45p tax rate, but whether she could recover once she inevitably did. Now, this morning, when we're speaking, Monday morning, she did finally U-turn. And the question remains whether Liz Truss can ever recover politically from what has been an utterly disastrous first impression on the British public. And just sort of describe the scene around you. What is it like and what is the mood like? Well, there aren't many Conservative MPs here, first off, because remember, a large majority of Conservative MPs didn't endorse Liz Truss during the parliamentary phase of the Conservative leadership election. Mm. So a lot of them remained discontented and just decided to stay home. The U-turn of that scale has contributed to the sort of general climate of of tetchiness, for sure. I mean, one of the events of Michael Gove's destruction tour yesterday, denouncing Liz Truss and Kwasi Kwarteng's policies at every turn, the thing that most struck me was that it was, a, it was a room mostly full of Conservative Party members and they weren't heckling him over his disloyalty. Generally, Conservative Party members have seemed quite receptive to the idea that this government hasn't got off on a very good foot. And Henry, you mentioned the Michael Gove destruction tour. Talk us through that. So this began on, on Sunday at the start of party conference before we'd had the U-turn. Describe what he's been up to. Well, I knew that when when I saw that Michael Gove had been booked on the BBC's Laura Koonsberg Sunday morning show, I I, I knew that he was up to something because he'd been quiet since his sort of relatively late endorsement of Rishi Sunak in the pages of The Times during the leadership election. And and so it proved, I mean, it must have been quite unsettling for Liz Truss. You know, he was there in her peripheral vision as she gave her first big set-piece BBC interview as Prime Minister. And the second she finished, Laura Koonsberg cut to Michael Gove, who, who denounced what she'd said, or specifically said that she had not appreciated the scale of the change to her budget that was required. I think 
what Michael Gove was doing was interesting for two reasons. One was just that he's Michael Gove, you know, the great cabinet minister of, of this era of conservative governments, I think most people would say, and, you know, is attacking the government. And that's that's interesting in, in and of itself. But the other thing was that in doing so, as a figure of the stature that he is, he gave cover to MPs with less of a profile who perhaps a bit more cautious to follow him in doing the same. And I think, you know, yesterday, by the end of the day, was spiralling into a massive public revolt. And that's why the U-turn came you know, less than 24 hours after Michael Gove and Liz Truss shared a BBC studio. I mean, just talk us through that, because for a lot of us, I think that would have been a dizzying pace. So we started with Liz Truss doubling down, saying they would not be changing their mind on the 45p tax rate. How did that change in the course of 24 hours? What was happening behind the scenes? It was pretty clear pretty quickly yesterday that there was not going to be a majority in the House of Commons for this measure. So the question in my mind was not whether the 45p tax rate was going to be abolished, but whether Liz Truss and Kwasi Kwarteng would see the political inevitability and grasp the nettle now, rather than wait to be stung some months down the line. So I don't know what happened behind the scenes, but to me, it always felt inevitable, whatever Liz Truss's public posture, that this U-turn was coming. And you mentioned that they wouldn't have got it through the Commons. How many Tory MPs looked set to rebel? Well, put it this way, it was impossible, at least off the record, to find a single Conservative MP who is not in the government who seemed willing to vote for it. So, you know, it could have been an astronomical rebellion. And Henry, this afternoon, having already faced the broadcast round, this afternoon he's he's going to face a, a hall full of people, and I imagine that will be an audience that's packed. What are you expecting him to say? What do people in the hall need to hear? They sent round an embargoed trail, as we call it, you know, a sort of here are some words that Kwasi Kwarteng is expected to say yesterday morning. And they were about how the government was going to stay the course. So uh, that's been taken out, I assume. I mean, if it hasn't, it makes no sense. You wouldn't want to be a speechwriter right now. <laughs> no. He'll try to say, well, look, we are standing firm and we did the right thing and all of that. But also, you know, we're ditching the thing that we said 24 hours ago was essential to driving growth in the UK. And it's a difficult balancing act, but that's the position they've got themselves into. Well, while they're busy rewriting, we'll let you carry on speaking to people at conference and we'll catch up with you this afternoon after he's actually spoken to see how it goes. Thanks, Manveen. I'll speak to you later. Bye-bye. Coming up, the new Chancellor has certainly caused a splash. But who is Kwasi Kwarteng? Rachel Sylvester charts his journey to number 11 Downing Street. That's after a quick message from a colleague. I'm David Collins. I'm the Northern Editor of The Sunday Times. I'm an investigative reporter who's helped police convict a serial killer and revealed how Number 10 covered up the misfiring of our nuclear deterrent. We can only do this work thanks to the subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times. Subscribe today by visiting thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. 
In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com I'm Rachel Sylvester and I'm a columnist at The Times. Rachel, you've been looking at... Quasi Quateng as a character and his history. Take us back to the very beginning. What do we know about his background and, and growing up? He grew up in Waltham Forest, uh, the son of Ghanaian immigrants, middle-class family. His father was an economist at the Commonwealth Secretariat, his mother a barrister and a big fan of Margaret Thatcher. He went to private prep school, Collet Court, in London as a boarder when his father was posted to Switzerland. So he went to board at the age of eight, which he admits is probably too young, but he obviously thrived, loved it, and got into Eton at 13, where he was obviously very hardworking. People describe this kind of slightly lanky, mal-coordinated teenager, but also quite hardworking, determined to take that opportunity and make the most of it. He won the prestigious Newcastle Scholarship, which Boris Johnson also won, actually, which is the school's most prestigious academic prize. And he also played the wall game, which is their kind of Etonian brutal version of rugby and football. His friends from that time say he was a great addition to any team because he was so tall. He's now six foot five. Natural advantage. Exactly. What do people say about him around that time, during that period? As a student, what do people make of him? Well, he then went to Cambridge, where he was this slightly sort of geeky, a bit eccentric, a bit fogeyish figure who sometimes smoked a pipe and he wore tweed and corduroy, even for football matches, when he would wear brogues rather than football boots. But he was a slightly head-in-the-clouds kind of person at that time, very studious, focused on his books, a bit eccentric. Hello, I'm Quasi Quarting from London, and I'm reading classics. And he appeared on University Challenge. Which museum is a painstaking replica of the Villa dei Papyri in Herculaneum, built on the West Pacific Coast Highway at Malibu and containing many world-famous works of art? Trinity Quarting. The John Paul Getty Museum. It is indeed.
He used the F word when he forgot the answer. But his friends from that time are warm about him and complimentary. Nobody really thought he'd go into politics. One person said the everyday run of things didn't worry him. He'd be immersed in his books. But he also had this slightly superior attitude that some people found a bit off-putting. One of his friends from that time said that Quasi was always very affable, but I always found that he made me feel rather inadequate and not his equal. It's grammar school versus Eton, I'm afraid, and Quasi is very much an Etonian. I heard another incident about the Michael Oakeshott Society, which was this conservative dining club that he was invited to join at Cambridge. And it was a sort of conservative-leaning dining club devoted to what was called intelligent conversation. And you had to go along and sing for your supper and talk about some highly intelligent issue. And A lot of the people who were there describe him as this sort of incredibly intelligent, intellectually confident, very clever person. But I spoke to one person who went to one of those dinners who said he was so overconfident and supremely confident. He gave a sort of lecture on the Roman Empire. And this person said he just looked so at ease in this room full of power and privilege. And there's absolutely no way, according to this person who went to the dinner, that Quasi Quateng understands anything about poverty or what it's like to really struggle to make ends meet. And it was quite an interesting observation, I thought, right from a very early age. He had this sense of being born to rule, fitting into a room full of power and privilege. This is a room full of politicians. Exactly. This is a, a society devoted to intellectual conversation. He's been a scholar at Eton. He's very confident about about his abilities at Cambridge. He speaks six languages. He read Thomas Piketty's Capital in the original French. He writes poetry in Latin. He's written some pretty well-received history books. So he's very clever, but I'm not sure how wise he is or how politically savvy. And he does seem to have this slight lack of kind of understanding of how other people who perhaps haven't had such a privileged life might live. So he's very at home in the gentlemen clubs of St. James's, Whites and the Garrick. One Tory MP described to me smoking cigars with him in the St. James's bar late into the night. He's this kind of big guffawing laugh, big man intellectually and in terms of personality and physically. But I think with this kind of perhaps a lack of understanding of how other people might live and struggle. Tell us about what happens to him after university. After his first degree at Cambridge, he won a Kennedy scholarship to Harvard University and then he went back to Cambridge to study for a doctorate. And actually, his PhD was about a a currency crisis. Ironically. Ironically. So after that, he then worked as a fund manager at JP Morgan and for Odie Asset Management, which is run by the Brexit-backing investor Crispin Odie. One thing that's interesting is people who know him from school were quite surprised that he went into politics. One school friend said to me that with Boris Johnson, it was clear right from the start that he wanted to be world king, as he put it, as a boy. Whereas Kwasi Kwarteng didn't have that kind of overt ambition from an early age. But perhaps he sort of acquired it over time when he went to all these dinners and saw all these powerful people and realised that he was their equal and maybe he should be trying to run the country as well as make money in the city. How does he do that? How does he start to make inroads into the Conservative Party? 
He stood as the candidate for Brent East and didn't win. And then in 2010, he becomes MP for Spellthorn in Surrey. And that was the same year as Liz Truss. And that was the year when David Cameron became prime minister as head of a coalition. And he and Liz Truss formed this this alliance of free market libertarians who are slightly hostile to some of the compromises that the Conservatives are making with the Liberal Democrats. They wrote a pamphlet called Britannia Unchained, which was this kind of libertarian tract, famously described British workers as the worst idlers in the world. But the idea was that it was all in favour of a smaller state, lower taxes, less regulation. And he's distanced himself from that since, but actually you can see the seeds of the mini-budget in that pamphlet that they produced with the focus on lower taxes, enterprise and deregulation. Around that time, he's also writing books independently outside of politics. Tell us a bit about those and what you learn of his character from them. So he's written several quite well-received history books. And one that's interesting, I think, particularly, is his book about the empire called Ghosts of Empire. And he doesn't take the traditional conservative, rose-tinted view of British history that some favour. He talks about rejecting the sterile debate over whether empire was a good or bad thing. And his conclusion is that much of the instability in the world is a product of its legacy of individualism and haphazard policymaking. So he's not comfortable with the culture wars that some on the right of the Tory party really favour when it comes to empire or other political questions. He hasn't stood up against them, though. No, but I think it's interesting when you think about the debate on immigration, for example, he and Liz Truss are much more liberal about immigration than some of the sort of more culture warrior Tory traditionists in the cabinet. Obviously, Rachel, you know, when he becomes chancellor, in a way that it's quite historic, he is the first black man to do the job. Will that have mattered to him? What I find really interesting is that people who know him best say that he has no sense of himself being proud of being the first black chancellor. He'd be proud of being a reforming chancellor, they say, but that isn't part of his identity. So one of his old political friends said to me, if the expectation is that the first black chancellor brings something to the job that comes from being an outsider, then that's not going to be fulfilled. He has middle-class Ghanaian parents. He's been bred to be an insider. And another friend said that actually where he went to school and how he grew up was more important than the colour of his skin. We've all stood by watching this crisis in just complete disbelief. And key to it, really, is that relationship between him and Liz Truss. Tell us about the relationship between the two of them. They're very good friends. They joined Parliament at the same time in 2010. They're the same age, 47. They used to be neighbours in Greenwich until they both moved into Downing Street together when she became Prime Minister. And they're politically very close as well, both part of this libertarian free market wing of the Tory party. So this economic strategy is very much a joint one. There's very little between them. And in fact, she can't get rid of him without getting rid of herself. Are there signs that there are now fissures between them? Are are things going wrong? You're starting to see just the beginnings of tension. So after the pound started to really slump and there was a discussion in the Treasury about how the Treasury had to put out some kind of statement 
we're told that at that time Downing Street and Liz Truss were really reluctant to intervene, but Kwasi Kwarteng insisted that they needed to. And I think that tension between the two is going to become potentially more and more apparent as Kwasi Kwarteng looks at the kind of scale of the problem that the economy is facing. And his job is to make sure that the country gets through this economically, whereas her job is, you know, to to win the political argument. And she wants to be seen as a sort of strong leader, but he has to be seen as a competent chancellor. Otherwise, there's absolutely no point of doing that job. Rachel, in your profile of him, Kwasi Kwarteng does come across as both, you know, an intellectually arrogant ideologue who doesn't change his mind. But also there are people who describe him as a pragmatist who will do what it takes to survive, to to get the job done. Which do you think will win out? So far, the ideologues won out. But if he wants to survive, he's going to have to be more pragmatic. I spoke to a couple of people in politics who knew him well. One of them, Joe Johnson, the former universities minister, has Mm. known him since Eton. Boris Johnson's brother. Boris Johnson's brother. And he said... Ultimately, he's a pragmatist and he'll choose pragmatism over ideology because that's what you have to do to survive. That's surprising. I thought that was quite interesting. And actually, I wonder whether that will cause a point of tension with Liz Truss because he, as chancellor, he will hear all the evidence about the potential impacts on the economy of their policies. And there's a danger from her point of view, that she starts to think that he's been captured by the kind of this treasury mindset, this treasury orthodoxy, as they see it. And he won't want to go down as the chancellor who's crashed the economy. So I think there's definitely an interesting tension there between Kwasi Kwarteng, the ideologue free market libertarian, and Kwasi Kwarteng, the political pragmatist who wants to get ahead. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome the Chancellor of the Exchequer. Thank you, you, conference. What a day. It has been tough. Henry, how how is it looking over there? Well, not much changed from when we spoke earlier, Manveen. I mean, you've just watched Kwasi Kwarteng address conference live in Birmingham. How did the speech that he delivered, how did it compare with the one that he was planning to deliver just 24 hours ago? Well, it definitely had a different introduction. He came straight on stage and said, conference, what a day. And, you know, acknowledged what I guess is not so much an elephant as a whole sort of Noah's Ark of animals that were in the room, which is that he was making his first speech to the Conservative Party conference as chancellor, having also made one of the biggest U-turns I can remember any chancellor ever making, not to mention the speed of that U-turn. Talk us through what we learnt from the speech, because, you know, having done that U-turn, what's left of of trustonomics, the government's economic policy? What are they really going big on? I mean, that's the really good question, and, and I'm not sure I'm left with much clearer an answer after that speech. We believe in low tax, high growth, and fiscal discipline. We are Conservatives. Kwasi Kwarteng said that the deeply held belief we all share as Conservatives was fiscal responsibility. And he talked about an ironclad commitment. We will forge a new economic deal for Britain, backed by an ironclad commitment for fiscal discipline. 
more businesses. Well, I'm not completely clear today is the day for him to be speaking about ironclad commitments to anything whatsoever, but it, it's certainly slightly strange. But fiscal discipline. Well, for, for a chancellor to have unveiled what, in his terms, was a deeply radical, I'm he used that word today, economic policy, not 10 days ago. And then today to be trying to pull off the conjuring trip of, trick of saying it's both radical and entirely consistent with what conservatives have always believed. I think the truth is that he and Liz Truss have, have rattled and don't quite know how to present where they've ended up. I can be frank. I know the plan put forward only 10 year, uh, days ago has caused a little turbulence. I get it. I get it. Uh, we are listening and have listened. And Henry, before all of this, two weeks ago, we understand that the Chancellor's strategy, which I think they were planning to call Operation Rolling Thunder, was going to unleash a whole set of um, policies after this, sort of looking at cuts, for example, but also looking at supply-side measures to try to help growth. Are they going to have trouble getting any of these measures across the line now that they've already had to U-turn so quickly on their big first raft of policies. Yeah, I think you have to assume so, Manveen. I mean, supply-side reforms, if they are to be effective, are going to have to be quite radical and are going to have to upset some Conservative MPs, particularly on housing, particularly on immigration. I mean, on immigration, as we've reported in The Times, it's likely to upset members of the Cabinet, let alone backbenchers. So I think it's a little bit hard to see how a government which couldn't get through a tax cut, albeit an especially controversial and, to use Grant Shapps's phrase, politically tineered tax cut, can make credible promises of bold supply-side reform. But look, that's what this trust is going to have to do. It's what Quasi Quatting is going to have to do, because if they can't do the supply-side side of the equation, then their project to get growth is in even more trouble than it looked at this morning when they had to dramatically abandon a key part of their budget or mini-budget. That was quite big. <laughs> but changes to planning laws, to fracking, no MP really wants that happening in their own constituency. Are they going to face more of a battle? Yeah, inevitably. And they know that. And I don't think they have a particularly clear plan to overcome it. No more distractions. We have a plan and we need to get on and deliver it. That's what the public... That's what the public... And some of the big names, former cabinet ministers, people like Michael Gove and Grant Shapps, you know, they've been very openly critical. Is it starting to feel like this is almost a coalition of two parties and Michael Gove seems seems to be the de facto leader of the other faction? I mean, that was certainly the case on 45p. But what is not clear to me yet... Next? Well, exactly. What is not clear yet is whether that's a persistent thing or whether it was just that discrete issue of a tax cut for the wealthiest in society at this particular moment. I don't know yet. But potential cuts to benefits, for example, if that's part of balancing the books and being fiscally disciplined, you know, how would that go I mean, down that's now, defi- that given is, the state absolutely, of the Absolutely, that's definitely another flashpoint to come. Let's see, because the government hasn't even announced its plans on that yet. But look, it's certainly a live discussion in government, and it could get very dicey for them. And it's too soon yet to know how the markets will react to quasi quoting speech. But this morning, since since they announced the U-turn, we have seen the pound bouncing back. How is that being greeted in, in the hall? 
speaking to Conservative MPs over the last few days, they seem not that exercised by the value of sterling specifically. I think they're more exercised by mortgages and interest rates, but you know, in terms of how that affects their constituents and voters, I think that's more on their minds than the exchange rate with the dollar. However, uh, one MP I was speaking to said, you know, if if the pound goes below the dollar, that might be a bit of a moment. But yeah, I'm not sure they're sort of frantically following the currency markets here. It is more, how is this? By this, I mean the sort of broad economic headwinds and worse, how is this affecting their constituents' lives? And what might it mean for how they vote at the next election? And we know that last week the polls were disastrous for, for the Conservatives. Will the party look back on this week, do you think, as the moment they lost the next election? Uh, yeah, I mean, very possibly. I mean, look, we will know in the coming weeks how lasting the kinds of extraordinary polling we've seen over the last few days, how lasting, how enduring that is. I mean, you know, 33-point Labour lead with YouGov is the biggest lead that any party has recorded with any pollster in a quarter of a century. I mean, if that leads... Labour lead stays around there, settles around there, or even settles around 20 points. I think Conservative MPs will see this as the moment that things turned, for sure. But I think it is too soon to say whether this is a Black Wednesday moment for Conservative polling or something a bit more transitory. But as I guess, it would have been on Black Wednesday. But certainly there is deep, deep, deep discomfort among Conservative MPs in a way that there really wasn't before the budget. Liz Truss and Kwasi Kwarteng have have, through their own actions, taken themselves into into the sort of dicey phase of their leadership that often takes, or certainly took, Boris Johnson and Theresa May years to get to. And that's extraordinary. I've never seen anything like it. And, you know, yeah, this could be a week of politics that we remember for a long time to come. With grit, with drive and with determination, we can meet the challenges of this new era. Thank you. You've been listening to Stories of Our Times, a podcast brought to you thanks to the subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times, with me, Manveen Rana, and my guest, The Times political columnist, Rachel Sylvester, and Times associate political editor, Henry Zeffman. You can find all of Rachel and Henry's work at thetimes.co.uk or in print. The producers today were James Shield and Priyanka Deladia. The executive producer is Kate Ford. If you enjoyed this episode, please do leave us a review. It'll help others to find it. Thanks for listening. See you tomorrow. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.